I appreciate very much the invitation to be here and to get to see uh, a lot of guys here that I know and love and appreciate, appreciate your work. It was great to uh, uh, be with some people last night that I don't see this morning. I know everybody's busy, but this morning we're going to be talking about uh, James 1, 2 through 12, and uh, it couldn't be more relevant. Um, I think if James were here today, looking down on us in our towns and our cities, he would say, whence come these wars and fightings among you? Because if we've ever had them, we have them now. I mean, we've had Occupy Wall Street and that craziness. We've had riots in Minneapolis. Uh, We've had riots in Portland burning down whole city blocks. We've had police shootings and riots over those shootings in places like even Louisville. Uh, We've had the storming of the Capitol after the election. I mean, to say that we live in in tumultuous times is an understatement. These conflicts are not just surface conflicts. They are systemic conflicts in our culture right now because we have a clash of cultures, different cultures who don't understand each other. And because they don't understand each other, they are at odds. The political divides here and elsewhere are deep and they're emotional. The socioeconomic divides are deep and they're often misunderstood. And anyone with any kind of awareness about this understands that we're gonna need God's help more and more and more to weather these conflicts. Now you might be thinking that you're not involved in those conflicts, but I beg to differ because to some degree you are And if you're like me, you've been having normal conversations with people somewhere and thinking everything was going just fine and then you bring up the wrong thing or say the wrong word and all of a sudden from zero to 60, we're up to anger and and passion and and disputing and everything over things that, that Christians shouldn't be disputing about in the first place. There's no better book to address this if we really understand what this book is about than the book of James. If we reach out as churches to different people, different than us, if we stop being so homogeneous and start being more heterogeneous like God wants us to be, we're going to touch more and more people with completely different backgrounds and worldviews than we might have. And so we are going to have more and more conflict that we'll need to deal with uh, in a positive way. A conflict brings trials, and, and conflicts are some of the worst trials that we have, and these trials really test our faith. You know, seasons of conflict, I've, I've been through all kinds of them, uh, marriage conflicts, child custody conflicts are some of the ugliest things I've ever seen inheritance conflicts when people are angry at one another about some inheritance that they think they should have a part of. Uh, These are all bad enough, but then when you have societal systemic conflicts that are running under the surface of everybody in the culture, it makes things that much worse and it definitely bleeds over into our churches. And it's easy when you approach people because these things are, they they cause extreme emotions, raw emotions. And when you have extreme raw emotions, then from zero to 60, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. Things can get out of hand in a hurry. Be angry, but do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down upon your anger, neither give a foothold to the devil. And folks, these conflicts are giving a foothold to the devil, and they're allowing the devil to work in our lives, and we might think we're on the right, quote, side of whatever these conflicts are, but still the devil has a foothold. So listen carefully as we talk about this passage in the book of James this morning. In James chapter 2, uh, uh, James chapter 1, verse 2, pardon me, <clears throat> James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The word trial there is pirasmon, which can be translated trials or temptations. Some of your translations have it different ways. But in the book of James, it's precisely the trials, the difficulties, the tension that is bringing the temptation. Because in the, in the, in the, in the context of, of conflict, man, the devil is all over us. He's tempting us uh, at every second to, to not be what we claim to be. So he says, count it all joy, joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith. Now, this word testing there is a word which you find in verse 12. By the way, you find the word trials in the original language and testing in verse 2 and verse 12. He's talking about these, these intense situations which bring out the worst in people. I mean, when you are most afraid, when you are most uh, resentful, when you are most angry, when you are most discouraged, when you are most uh, outraged, this is, this is the time, whatever's happening in your life, when you're under the greatest temptation because trials test our faith. Uh, you see, we say, I am a Christian. <clears throat> but in the moment of trial, do we show that we are Christian? James is not just talking about, you know, turning away from God. He's saying, in these moments of trials, we're going to see whether you really act and speak and do as a Christian would do, or whether your Christianity is absent in the moment of conflict. That's what he's really talking about. And he says, uh, this uh, testing of your faith produces uh, endurance. The word means, it's not talking about patience with each other. This is a word which means hanging on, enduring. He's not talking like the book of Hebrews about just giving up. He's talking about enduring this conflict and being what you're supposed to be. Enduring it that way. Enduring it without losing your Christianity. See, that's what he's really getting at uh, in this passage if you read the whole book. And then he says, let patience or endurance, and you'll note in chapter 5 he comes back to this, the patience, you know, endurance of somebody like Job. But the patience needs to have its perfect work. So the bottom line of this, where James is coming from, is that when we go through these intense periods of conflict that test our Christianity, it, tribulation produces steadfastness or endurance, and endurance uh, produces approvedness, and approvedness produces hope. He's talking about the fact that God is working on us in the moment of testing, and if we allow it, God is making us into better Christians. If we can be a Christian in the moment of this testing and conflict. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, he talks about trials. And he talks about them as divine discipline. And he says they yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by them. 
Let me ask you, are you being trained by your trials to be a better person? Or are you so angry and resentful and upset that you're not allowing God to shape you and mold you and train you and make you more what you ought to be on the other side of those trials? You see, James is talking about enduring those trials as a Christian acting like a Christian. During those trials, the rain beats down on our house and the floods come and the winds blow against our house and we find out if our house is really founded on the rock, don't we? Or whether it's built on the sand. You say, I say, I say to my children, my grandchildren, the people in my church, I am a Christian. Should they believe me or not? Should they believe me when I'm in the moment of conflict that I am a Christian? Should I live as a Christian? James says, blessed is the man who endures. That's your word patience from verse 2. Endure and patience, same original word. Endures temptation or trial. He means you successfully endure it by behaving correctly during the temptation. That's why he says a few verses later, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He's talking about when the, when the, when the going gets really rough in the heated moment of conflict, are you what you claim to be? Do you display what you claim you are? So this is the idea. Now picture, this is a, a very real picture in our society right now. A bunch of plant bosses in the background, and they got a problem. They got a real problem with their workers. Their workers are angry. Their workers have an issue. Their workers are rising up in their union together against them. And this plant foreman standing in the front, you know, he's looking out there at his, at his workers, and he's, he's looking at their, their faces and the, and the the, the outrage, the anger, the disappointment on their faces. And at the same moment, if he's a member of the Lehman Avenue Church, he's saying, man, I'm a Christian. And these guys behind me, man, they're pressuring me to, to, to come down with a hammer on these people. And these people in front of me who are workers for their families, they're trying to make a living for their family, and, and I'm a Christian, and I'm caught right in the middle of this, and what am I going to do? How am I going to approach this? See, this is really exactly, not just generally, but exactly what James is talking, James is talking about. So, in verse 5, James says, like this guy was probably saying, God, I need your wisdom about what to do. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you really and do you really want it? Because if you really read this passage, some people think, oh, if I, just, if I need wisdom from God, I'm going to say, just God, give me wisdom, and he's just going to zap me with wisdom, and I'm going to have wisdom. No. Uh-uh. That's not what this is about. Let's read. If any lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. <clears throat> who gives to all liberally without holding back, and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. Let's study for a moment the word doubting. This is diakrino in Greek. And if you look up the different definitions for it, 
It depends on the context. It means to judge. It means to decide. It means all kinds of different things. But it also means to hesitate. It means to waver. It means to waffle. And I don't believe in this passage it means to doubt that God can do something. And I do not believe this passage is saying that if you doubt that God can do something, that he won't answer you. That's not what this is saying at all. What he's saying is, let him ask in faith, not wavering, not waffling, not inside of his own mind saying, you know, I need to go to the scriptures. But when he goes to the scriptures and he seeks God's wisdom, he's really not wanting to know everything God says. He's really wanting to justify his bad behavior. Because he's been getting mad during this conflict and he's flown off the handle some and he feels like he's on the right side of this conflict. And so he's looking up passages that go against the other side and he's trying to justify himself. Reminds me of Luke chapter 7 verse 35 <clears throat> where Jesus was talking about those people that rejected Jesus and why they did it and those people that rejected John the Baptist and why they rejected him and he says and wisdom is justified by her children meaning what they were really after was not God's wisdom what they were really after was justifying their position now some of you out there I just know it you are so fired up and hardened in your political positions or in your socioeconomic posi uh, positions, and you can go to the scripture and you can find those scriptures that justify your positions, whether you're on the left or on the right, it doesn't make any difference. You can justify those positions. But James is talking about somebody who is open and humble and open to God, and they don't want to justify themselves even if they're convicted of sin, they're willing to open up God's word and God, whatever you tell me, I'm going to take it to heart and I'm going to change what I need to change. And that's what I'm going to do. That's asking without wavering, without waffling, without being a double minded person who is unstable in all of his ways. See, double minded means you can't make up your mind because You've got one foot in wanting to justify yourself and one foot in trying to be religious and you're finding a tension between those two things and you're double-minded. You're not being honest with God. You don't really want God's wisdom. What James is saying is if you don't want God's wisdom, don't ask. If you really want his wisdom, go to the Bible. It's pretty obvious and James's take on this is love your neighbor as yourself. Did you get that simple thing? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's sort of like whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you. What's the rest of that? Do ye also unto them. Isn't that exactly the same thing as love your neighbor as yourself? Exactly. What's complicated about that? But that means I'm going to have to change my attitude and I'm going to have to change my behavior in the way that I even approach all this stuff. In the book of James, he talks about this again in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. It says, therefore, submit to God. You know, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We skip this part a lot in our quotes. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, you waffling people. 
that have one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord, and you want to have it both ways. Stop being double-minded and be humble and honest and penitent and open and say, Lord, how do you want me to handle this? And when you get the answer, even though it doesn't make you happy, try to do what the Lord has asked you to do, even if all your friends are fired up and they've got the, the wrong attitude. This is what will heal our churches and our relationships. James is addressing in this book a real conflict where people were not just mad at each other, folks, they were killing each other. They were really honestly killing each other. He says so in chapter 4, okay? This was a conflict that was very much like the Bolshevik Revolution. That's when all the poor and disenfranchised rose up against the aristocracy in Russia and overthrew it and instituted communism. See, it's like the French Revolution, same song, another verse, the, the masses and the classes. See, they, they got tired of, of being trodden down and they rose up. It happened then. It's happened in various times. It happened in Germany in the 1930s. It's happened all over the place. And it never turns out good when this kind of thing happens. And it especially never turns out good when neither side is willing to look at things through the eyes of the other side. Now let me show you in the book of James that I'm not just blowing smoke, okay? So in our passage, notice here on the screen that he speaks of the brother or sister of humble circumstances, and then he speaks of the rich person. And then he speaks of the rich person again. Well, is that just uh, by the by? No, not really. Let's keep looking. See, this is my passage, but my passage only fits in the whole book. Let's go down to 127. You quote it. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit episkeptomai, which means to look after, take care of the fatherless and the widows. Well, are the fatherless and the widows the rich or the poor? They're the poor, aren't they? The fatherless and the widows. See, he started out talking about the rich man, the poor man. Now he's talking about you need to pay attention to these people that are disenfranchised and, and poor. That's pure religion. But I'm a Christian, okay? Step up if you're a Christian. All right, so what else does he say? Look at chapter 2. Somebody's going to preach on this. Favoritism. But look, we're talking about the man with a gold ring dressed in bright clothes. Well, tell me, is which one is that? That's the rich guy, right? And we're also talking about the poor man, you know, in his dirty clothes. Y'all ever have people in dirty clothes that come in here? Treat them a little differently maybe than you treat the ones with the nice clothes? Um, you can see, again, he repeats there, the one who's wearing the bright clothes, you say to the poor man, rich and the poor. He talked about the rich and the poor in 1.9. He talked about taking care of the poor in 127. He's talking about the rich and the poor again. And as he keeps going in chapter 2 here, <clears throat> he says, you make distinctions among yourselves, do we? Yes, absolutely we do. Let's quit, let's quit lying about that. And let's own that. Yes, absolutely we do. And James says if we do, we become judges with evil thoughts. We come to evil conclusions about people that we know nothing about. We know nothing about their background or what brought them to wherever they are. We just think those things in our mind. 
He talks about the poor of this world. And I can hear some of your minds turning right now. Some of you are arguing with what I'm going to say in your minds because you don't want to hear it. But James is wanting to tell you. See? So open up those hearts. And listen. The poor of this world. Notice he says you dishonor the poor man. Have we ever done that? Have we ever dishonored the poor man? I remember a meeting I was in in Florida. A guy that was clearly drunk walked in and he sat down at the back row and he didn't cause anybody any trouble. He had poor clothes on. I got up and spoke one of the times I was supposed to speak. And then in the intermission, the guy walked down to the front and he was obviously kind of wobbling a little bit. One of the members of the church was a cop. He got up and told the guy to leave. And when the guy pulled against him, the guy smacked him really hard in the face, knocked him down in the floor right there in front of the entire church. My kids were with me and dragged him out the side door. I'm a Christian. This is our gospel meeting. I'm a Christian. What do you think about that? Don't want to hear about that, do we? Okay, because maybe it's too much, a little bit too much like me. Let me tell you a story I'm ashamed of. One time I was on the road <clears throat> I was uh, stopping at a McDonald's. If you want a good coffee, stop at McDonald's. And uh, I was getting ready to check out at the McDonald's, and the computer was down, and all I wanted was a cup of coffee and maybe a snack for my wife. I can't remember, but I gave this kid uh, of a different culture than me some money, and the computer was down, and the kid opens the drawer, and, and he's, he's looking at the drawer, and he's trying to make change from $3.00. And a kid cannot make change to save his life. I am totally ashamed before God that in my mind, not out loud, but in my mind, I said, good grief, they, can't they even get people that can't make change, that can make change? But you know what? God did not smile on me that day. Because that child, who knows what his background was, and who knows what kind of a family he came from, and who knows what kind of opportunities he came from, and I despised him in my mind, and I sinned when I should have been thinking lovingly and being more of a help and an encourager than somebody that I'm ashamed of. And that was me. See, I'm not proud of that. All right, so let's go to our, let's argue about baptism passage, which isn't about baptism. Faith without works is dead. The baptism, do you know that that passage has absolutely zero to do with baptism? Will you stop using that passage in your arguments about baptism, please? There's lots of good baptism passages. That ain't one of them. He's talking about, I am a Christian, and yet I see the poor person right in front of me, and I've got the means to help, and I don't help. So saying I'm a Christian and being a Christian is two different things. But what I'm trying to show you is it's still about the conflict between the rich and the poor. James 4. Whence come these quarrels and conflicts among you? The source is not, is it not your own pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. Who's that talking about? Which group is that? You do not have. That's the poor. And you commit murder. See, they were actually doing that. And you are envious and cannot obtain. All right, you know what? Well, let's boil this down to you and me. Right now, I'm at retirement age. You'd say, why don't you hurry up and do it, you know? But <clears throat> I'm at retirement age. And honestly, folks, 
I'm struggling to keep what I have. Some of you are saying, hey, I get that. But there are other people in this world that are so desperately trying to get what they don't have. See? They're desperately trying to get what they don't have, and I'm trying to keep what I have. You see the, you see the tension between those things? And it's not that we can't find some middle ground and be good to everybody, but, but we have to be open to God. There, there's temptation on both sides of this conflict. There's temptation on all sides. It's not that one side is right and one side is wrong. It's that the devil is working inside of the minds of the people that are involved in this conflict and trying to destroy his people by these things. In James chapter 4, one of the most misused passages in the whole book, you know, come now you that say today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a city and buy and sell and get gain. You know, this is the rich guy who's going into a city to set up a, an, uh, a business that's going to make a profit. But this rich guy is not thinking about the people that he's going to have to squash to make the profit. He's only thinking about profit. See, that's his only thing. Should Christians think win-win or win-lose? Tell me. I'm just standing here. Tell me. You, are you the only person that knows? Should we not work with everybody we can to make a win-win instead of a win-lose? How many people do I have to fire or lay off so that I can make a profit? And should I not say, whatever the Lord wills, I will do? Does the Lord want me to crush other people so I can make a profit? Answer me, church. No, he does not. So use this passage correctly when you say, to him that knows to do what's good, in other words, what the Lord's will is, and does not do it, to him is a sin, businessmen. See? Whoa! That's a different turn on that, isn't it? That's what James is actually talking about in this passage, right after the, the saying. He says, come now, you rich people. You're hoarding up your riches. Reminds me of Luke 12. You know, the guy, he makes a bumper crop, and he says, what shall I do? I don't have any place to store my goods. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns so I can put it all in there and enjoy it for who? For myself. It never occurs to that guy once that he should share his abundance with other people. Not once does he even go there in his mind. See, it reminds me of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 15, charge them that are rich in this present world that they be not high-minded or have their hopes set on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who gives us all things richly to enjoy, that they be ready to do good, willing to share, you know, ready to every good work. See, that's, that's James, and that's the same thing that Paul said. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which some straining after have, have uh, turned away from the face and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Then he says... Look at this. Behold the cry of the workers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by, and, and which has been withheld by you. Uh, the outcry of those who did the harvesting. You've, you've withheld their wages from them, he's saying. Now let's, let's talk turkey here for a minute. 
How do you treat the people that mow your yard? Well, I can't understand a word they're saying, so I don't, you know. Seriously? You think they don't have hearts and lives and families just like you do? How do you treat the women, ladies, that clean your house once in a while if somebody cleans your house? How do you treat those women? You try to pay them as little as you possibly can? Um, how do you treat the, the young lady that serves your food if she's been harried and she can't get to you in time? Say, well, she's serving my food. She don't deserve a tip. I'm not going to, you know. What about her kids that she's got at home? And what about the fact that she's trying to make a living and may not have a man to help her or whatever? Have you ever thought about that? You ought to give her a decent tip no matter what. Why? Because you say, I am a Christian. I love my neighbor as myself. Whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye also unto them. God's wisdom uh, calls for Christian behavior. Let's just boil it down. You know, in this passage in, in the book of James, basically it's this. Listen a whole lot. We all need to do more of that. Speak very little. Control your anger. Be fair and impartial toward all people. Who do you say hi to, by the way? Say, let's just dive right into it. Who do you say hi to? Do you say hi to only people that are just like you on the same side of whatever conflict this is? Is that how you roll? Shame, shame, shame. And I'm talking to me. We've got to make a special effort to greet people that are not like us socioeconomically, racially, linguistically, whatever the case might be. We need to treat people fair and impartial. We need to sit with people that are different with, uh, from us. We need to invite people that are different from us. And when we wrong others, we need to humbly admit our wrongs to each other. This is the way to build bridges and soothe conflicts. Learn to see yourself and others the way God actually sees you. Now, in our own passage that we have here, about time you went back to your passage, I'm showing you how my passage fits into the book. Okay? So, now the brother or sister of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. If, if you're of humble circumstances, thank God that you can eat. Thank God for the roof over your head. Thank God that you're redeemed. Thank God that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Thank God that you're going to heaven. Just glory in the fact that you're one of God's people, see? And let the rich person glory in his humiliation, see? Because our riches are like the flower of the grass. They can pass away in an instant. Second um, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, If we measure ourselves by ourselves and compare ourselves with ourselves, we're without understanding. How does God look at me? How does God look at that person on the other side? Then I ought to look at myself more like that, and I ought to look at the other person more like that, because God loves us all. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here. No, I'm not going to make that assumption. But let's just say, <clears throat> um, we got political stuff coming up. It's nasty in this country. 
and they're all crooks. I don't care what side of the aisle they're on. Every last one of them, as far as I'm, I can see. And um, yet we get so deeply divided about this. I want you to think about the fact, church, that there are good, godly, loving people on the other side of the political aisle from you. Oh, but I don't believe it. Yes, you better learn because they've got scriptures for why they're on that side, just like you may have scriptures for while you're on that side. And we need to be treating one another as Christians and forget that nonsense. There's no place in the church of the Lord for politics. No place. And if any of you preachers are preaching politics instead of preaching the word, you need to stop it right now. And you need to preach God's word lovingly to all people the same way. Conflict is show and tell time. In our passage, James says, you know, count it all joy when you fall into these trials because the testing of your faith produces steadfast. I am a Christian. Am I? When I interact with the guy that's mowing my yard, am I? When I interact with people at Walmart that are crowding me, am I a Christian, you know, at work in the plant when I'm talking to workers, or am I a Christian at home in the way I treat my wife? If my children were to talk to you, would they say I'm a Christian you know, in all circumstances, you know? Am I a Christian in, with all cultures, you know? Am I really? <clears throat> Romans eight sixteen. Last passage, Romans eight sixteen. In that passage, Paul is talking about walking according to the flesh or walking according to the spirit. And he's talking about the way we live our lives, whether the flesh is directing our life or the spirit is directing our life. And in that passage, he gets to Romans 8 verse 12. So then we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, because if we live after the flesh, we must die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we shall live for as many as are led by the Spirit of God. These are the children of God. Now in verse 16, he says, And the Spirit bears witness with my spirit, or our spirit, that we are the children of God. What does that mean? That means through our words through our conduct, through our actions, through the way that we treat other people, the spirit bears witness with my spirit. My spirit, me, I say, I am a Christian. But through my conduct, the influence of the spirit bears witness as to whether I'm really a Christian or not, see? Because if my conduct matches my statement, I am a Christian, then the spirit bears witness with my spirit that I really am a child of God. But if my conduct contradicts my statement that I am a Christian, then the spirit does not bear witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. So, conflict is the testing ground of faith. We're in it. And you know what? Look at me, church. We're going to be in it for a while. 
It's not going anywhere. Will your Christianity, no matter who's doing what around you, will your Christianity endure through this trial of conflict? May God open our hearts to hear his word.